My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love them, love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Grace be to God. Amen. Let me uh, pray for us real briefly, and then we'll jump right into this part of the scriptures. Father, we ask now that you would come and do good work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit, working through the word of God as we hear it read and think about it together for a few minutes this morning. Lord, we pray that we would, Lord, we ask that we would experience conviction. That's a painful and hard thing to pray, but we do pray for that this morning. And yet that we would not only experience conviction, but that we would also turn in faith because of your grace to the Lord Jesus and see that he meets our needs and then equips us and transforms us to go out and care for others in the world. So help us, we ask now in these coming minutes. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question to start this morning. If you're a Christian and you wake up one morning and decide that you want to not be a Christian anymore, how do you go about doing that? That's rhetorical. I don't need you to answer. Um, If you want to deny the faith, how would you do it? Uh, Do you renounce your membership in the church? You write a book or a pamphlet, you know, criticizing the central tenets of the Christian faith? Do you join the local atheist club? I don't know. How do you do it? Well, James, in this passage, tells you one way you can deny the faith. Try discrimination or showing favoritism towards some and bias against others. James, here in these verses that were just read, counts that as a fundamental denial of the gospel, a fundamental denial of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's pretty crazy. That's hard to hear, maybe. And if it's true, then it demands that we take a few minutes this morning to find out what he exactly means by discrimination, by favoritism, and how we can be healed if we struggle with that in our own lives. We've been in this book for a couple of weeks now, and we've seen through James that God is deeply committed to making us whole people. 
or what I've called people of joyous integrity. We saw that in verse 4 of chapter 1, that James's purpose is that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God the Father is all about the business of forming you and forming me into individuals and into a family that is characterized by wholeness, that is characterized by integrity. One way we've seen that God does that is through giving us the hard grace of suffering, the hard grace of trials. He's written about that in the first part of chapter 1. And then last time at the end of chapter 1, we saw that God also demands, if we're going to pursue, if we're going to be on the journey to wholeness, God demands a ruthless honesty of each one of us. He demands that we look at ourselves honestly and see where we are hypocritical, see where we are double-minded, and turn from those things and to Jesus in faith. Now, today, as we get to chapter 2 of this letter, God continues to speak to us through the letter of James. And today, he wants us to see that integrity, wholeness, in large part, has to do with this issue of, dim- of discrimination. Or to put it another way, the journey towards wholeness involves journeying piece by piece, little by little, away from showing favoritism, away from the practice of discrimination. That's really the big idea in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Here's a way to sum up the main point. We know the gospel is making us whole people when we are leaving discrimination behind. We know the gospel is making us whole people when we are leaving discrimination behind. That's what God is speaking to us by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word this morning. So I want us to consider it honestly and openly together. Okay, three ideas as we think about that big point. First, we're going to talk about discrimination defined. What is it? And then two reasons why it's so bad. Discrimination is anti-gospel and discrimination is anti-law. So discrimination defined, discrimination is anti-gospel, discrimination is anti-law. You ready? Okay, good. I saw a few nods. I'm going to take that as a yes. So we're now moving forward. Okay, first, I want to show you, especially in verses 1 through 4, James defines and describes discrimination for us. He says there in verse 1, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That word there, partiality, is a really interesting word that, as far as we know, was just made up by the writers of the New Testament. It's a compound word, and literally it's translated from the original language, receiving the face, to receive the face. So what partiality or discrimination or favoritism means for James and for the authors of the scripture is this. It is the act of making judgments about people based on external appearances. It is the act of making judgments about people based on external appearances. Now, James is not saying here that it's never okay to differentiate between people. For example, if a 95-year-old woman comes into the theater today and an 18-year-old strapping young man come into the theater and there's only one seat left, it's not wrong or discriminating to give the 95-year-old woman the seat. So James isn't arguing here for some sort of radical social egalitarianism in which there's no uh, legitimate way ever to differentiate between people. Rather, what James is saying when he says show no partiality is that we should not make shallow judgments and evaluations on people based on external facts alone. And so what he does is give us really a vivid example of partiality 
or discrimination in verses 2, 3, and 4. If you look there, you'll see it. And this example is relevant in any and every age of the church. He says that one way we discriminate is by treating some people better than others based on if they are rich or poor. Look at what he says. He writes about these two visitors that come to a worship service just like this one in the ancient church there in what's now Turkey. And one of them, he says, is wearing a gold ring and really nice clothes. He seems wealthy, you see, based on external appearance. And the other one is dressed in shabby clothing. He seems impoverished or poor based on external appearance. And the man that is well-dressed is treated with respect. He's treated with honor, while the poorly dressed man is shunned and disregarded. What James is saying is that when we treat people in that way, when we make calculated judgments about, about them based solely on how they look or on how they smell, by the way, we are guilty and acting, he says in verse 4, as judges with evil thoughts. Judges with evil thoughts. In other words, when we show favoritism toward people in the church or anywhere for that matter, We are implicitly claiming God's own right to stand in judgment over them. You see that? God is the only one with a right to judge others. God's judgment is perfect. God judges the heart. Our judgments, on the other hand, are imperfect. In fact, they can very often, as James says here, be evil judgments. So discrimination is one of the many ways in which you and I, in our natural, fallen, and broken disposition, try to play God. It's one of the many ways in which we sort of want to scoot him off of his royal throne and sit there ourselves as if the universe revolves around us and we are the ones who call the shots. And further, discrimination not only is us attempting to be God and judge people, but it also displays a significant lack of empathy for the other, which is fundamentally against the way of Jesus Christ. So James gets right down to it. Favoritism, discrimination is no small thing. It's a grave injustice, rather. It's a significant bit of double-mindedness and hypocrisy. One of the best stories in our culture that lays out um, the wickedness of discrimination and favoritism is Harper Lee's famous novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Some of you, probably most of you read that at some point if you've ever gone to school, public school. Many of you know the story. Uh, At one point early in the book, Atticus Finch, who's the protagonist, says to his daughter, Scout, the other main protagonist, he says this, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb inside of his skin and walk around in it. And then much later in the story, after the children in the story have been exposed to to the vicious racism in their small Alabama town, Jim, one of the other characters, in really a moment of deep pathos And reflection says this to Scout. If there's just one kind of folks, why can't they get along with each other? If they're all alike, why do they go out of their way to despise each other? Scout, I think I'm beginning to understand something. I think I'm beginning to understand why Boo Radley stayed shut up in the house all this time. It's because he wants to stay inside. If anyone is to put off The favoritism, the discrimination, the partiality that so often seems to define our culture. It is the follower of Jesus Christ, you see. 
So it's worth asking. As James, again, is calling us to, it's worth asking ourselves the hard questions. In what sense or in what way are you guilty of showing partiality? In what way are you guilty of discrimination? How and when do you cast judgment on others based solely on external appearance? Of course, deeply woven into our history in America in particular is one of the best examples of that, the great sin of racism, right? Let's not be so naive as to believe, and I'm going to say some hard things to you here. I want you to listen. Let's not be so naive as to believe that we are innocent of such a sin individually or corporately. I mean, do we not still at times discriminate based on the color of skin rather than the content of character, as Dr. King put it? Do we not quietly sometimes laugh or make racist jokes in the past or in the present? Do we refuse, as Harper Lee says, to climb inside another's skin and walk around in it and assume that we know and understand their experience, particularly as a minority in America, when we really don't? Do you immediately ignore the stories or the pleas of African-American or Hispanic brothers and sisters or immediately assume that they're just trying to, quote, play the race card and ignore what they're saying? It's undoubtedly one of the many ways deeply woven into our broken hearts that we tend to show partiality and discriminate. Another way is in the example James gives. It's pertinent for us as well. How often are we really guilty of drawing conclusions about someone's abilities or character or worth based on their occupation or their salary or what we think their salary might be? Do we privilege those who are able to give more in our congregation and treat them with special respect? Do we devalue and ignore the poor and the gifts and the character that they bring because of our selfish, discriminating calculations? A third example is just, you know, the idea of background or likes or interests. Isn't it much easier for us to want to be around people that are like us, people that have the same interests as us? And to just ignore, if not shun, those who are more difficult to know and to relate to. Is that not why cliquishness is so often a major issue in local churches? How often do we really make an effort to really value and befriend and spend significant time with and serve those who require deep work and empathy and understanding for us to really know? Friends, there's, there's literally... Millions of ways, a myriad of ways in which our own hearts, our own hearts reflect exactly what James is calling us to reject here. We so often find ourselves in the place of judge with evil thoughts, showing partiality as we at the same time attempt to hold our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what discrimination is. James defines it and then gives us a very vivid example. And then he gives us two reasons why discrimination is so bad. Why in God's eyes, it's such an evil thing. It's such a roadblock for you and for me to become people of joyous integrity. And the first reason that he gives is found in verses five and six. The first reason is that the discrimination is anti-gospel. Look at what he says there. Listen, my beloved brothers, verse five, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love them? 
Why is discrimination and partiality bad? The first reason is because it is directly opposed to an economy of grace. It is directly opposed to the gospel. Did you hear that verse? Listen, God chooses people for salvation in a radically indiscriminate way. Do you hear that? God chooses the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Paul tells us in another letter in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Do you see? If you're here today and you are a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus who has believed in the gospel, if you have received from God the Father his forgiving and matchless grace, listen, if that is true of you, it has absolutely nothing to do with your deservedness of it. It is not because God saw that you were smart or white or rich, or cool, or religious, or American, or whatever, that he chose you in grace for salvation. In fact, God chose you despite your overwhelming undeservedness. Listen, we are all poor and raggedy in God's eyes, and yet he loves us still. The gospel is that God gives himself in love for those who have absolutely nothing appealing about them. For those who actually deserve his enmity and rejection. For those who bring absolutely zero to the table. Christ died for us while we were still undeserving sinners. Christ loves us even though we are deeply unworthy of his love. Christ loves us even though we can give him nothing of value in return for his love. If God were to discriminate in his adopting love based on deservedness or worth, then none of us stand a chance of ever becoming a part of his family. Do you know and understand the gospel? I mean, that is the question when it comes to showing partiality. The good news is only good news when you see how bad your situation in reality is. Those who think that they are deserving. Listen, those who place themselves in the place of judge, verse 4. Those who bring their own attempts at righteousness to the table to bargain with God. Those types of people, people like me. They can never really see others with indiscriminate and impartial eyes. And the reason, the reason is because deep down, even though we may never voice this, deep down we think that God was partial to us because of something we did or something we are. If you understand the depth of your own need and unworthiness before God, then you will begin to treat others with more and more impartiality with less and less favoritism. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. 
in Gospel in Life, one of his books. A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That is the language of the moralist's heart. I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I am completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of God's grace. Why do you discriminate? Why are you partial? Why do you play favorites? Because in those moments, you do not really understand or believe the gospel. Because you have forgotten that God, were he to discriminate against you for any reason whatsoever, would cast you out of his presence forever. So as the gospel is taking root in our lives, changing and forming us by faith, as we're more and more understanding our own condition as sinners in God's size, and more and more understanding the great grace of Jesus for us in his death and resurrection, we more and more treat others not based on what they look like or what we think we can get from them, but based on an impartial, indiscriminating mindset. Discrimination is anti-gospel. Interestingly, and thirdly, James also tells us that discrimination is anti-law. That's another reason it's evil. He writes in verse 8 that favoritism contradicts what he calls the royal law. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you might know that that's the way Jesus Christ summarizes the entire law. The entire law is you shall love God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then James immediately counterpunches. You know, he expects us to return a jab, and so he gives us a few body blows <laughs> in 9, 10, 11, 12. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. James understands that we tend to minimize our discriminating behavior. We tend to minimize our tendencies towards favoritism and partiality. And one way we do that is by saying something like this. You know, I might do this from time to time, James, but it's really not that big a deal. Because by and large, I'm pretty good. By and large, I'm doing pretty well. I'm a law-abiding person, percentage-wise compared to, you know, the rest of the population. Surely, you know, sometimes you're right. Okay, sometimes I play favorites. But come on, I haven't killed anyone. I'm not sleeping with another woman. I haven't committed adultery. On the scale of merits and demerits, surely my partial attitude and lifestyle can't be that big of a deal. That is the mindset that James counterpunches. Here in 10 through 12, he says that not only does the one who discriminates not get the gospel, but the one who discriminates actually doesn't get the law either. And the first reason that the one who plays favorites doesn't get the law and is in fact anti-law is because he says the law cannot be divided up. You see that there in verses 9 and 10? Rather, the law is a unity. Whoever keeps the whole law, verse 10, but fails in one point has become accountable for what? For All of it. In other words, if you break one part, you break all parts. The great Roman moralist Seneca once said this, if you, he who has one vice has them all. Think about it this way. Imagine that uh, you have a huge glass vase 
on your mantle in your living room. And that one day the kids are playing baseball in the house. This is going to go well, right? They're playing baseball in the house, even though you've told them that they shouldn't play baseball in the house. And one day um, a ball gets hit by a bat and it strikes the vase and the vase begins to fall. But the oldest kid at the last minute catches it and it just kind of hits the mantle side and one big crack is there in the vase. And so the oldest son, you know, he puts the vase back up on. This isn't that bad. Let's turn it this way, right? Mom's not going to notice. Yeah, right. It didn't shatter into a million pieces. There's just, there's just one little crack, one little piece of glass out. Well, the point is, is it's still broken. The entire vase functionally is worthless. Even though it didn't shatter into a million pieces, it's still broken. That's what James is saying about God's law. And then he also says that the person who discriminates and shows favoritism can't, so he says they can't appeal to other laws that he or she thinks they have kept to get them off the hook, right? But then he says that the one who plays favorites is anti-law because loving other people or being impartial is not just some peripheral part of what God wants from us that's not that big of a deal to him or to us. The reason James quotes the Old Testament, love your neighbor as yourself, is because he wants us to understand that partiality is to violate the very substance, the very center of what it means to be a lover of God's law. It's a central piece of his good law, his good will for our lives. And the reason is because it's a central piece of his own character as God. He tells us as much many times. In the Old Testament, just one example, let me read from Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Listen, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So to discriminate is not only to violate God's law, it's to violate, it's to live in contradiction to who God in his essence is. It's to be in a deep and meaningful and resonant way, both anti-gospel and anti-God. So it's a big deal. And what James is saying is until you see the significance of this failing and until you're willing to work on it, to turn from it, to repent, you can never become a whole person. You can never continue down the road towards joyous integrity. That journey involves the process of becoming less and less tied to showing partiality, to discrimination. And as we come to see and believe in the gospel more and more, as we've already said, we reflect the nature of the gospel more and more and the nature of God's character more and more by not judging others based only on external appearances. I said last week that James is like a spiritual punch to the stomach. It really is. You know, every week, James, to be honest, James has been working me over like a rented mule. And it's bad. He's tearing me up every week. And I hope that you feel some of that too. Because I want us to understand that this is God's good and hard grace to us. 
He wants us to see ourselves rightly so that we could move down the path towards wholeness, the path towards integrity, the path towards a full life. And one way to think about this is to read from uh, Anne Lamont. I just want to close with this quote. This is a great quote from her. Here she's, I think, commenting on the idea that grace is here to help us and grace is here to change us, but that change often takes place in hard ways. Look at what she writes. Man is born broken. He lives by mending. The grace of God, the grace of God is glue. I wish grace and healing were more abracadabra kind of things. Also, the delicate silver bells would ring to announce grace's arrival. <laughs> but no, it's clog and slog and scooch on the floor in the silence, in the dark. There is grace for change, superabounding to each of us through Christ's death and resurrection. Let's pursue it together that we might be formed more and more into his image and love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray.